Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. My name is Geert, uh, your host once again on NBN, and I'm very honored to be joined today by Dr. Chase Burton. Burton, uh, Welcome, Chase. Thank you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Um, Dr. Burton is a professor of, an assistant professor of law and society at Leiden University, and he received his PhD and uh, JD from the University of California in Berkeley. Um, and his work has been published in journals such as Law and Social Inquiry and the British Journal of Criminology. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I guess your main research interests lie with the role of culture and social context, um, in the formation of theories of lawbreaking, uh, uh, some other fields, and above all, um, you have a focus on the uh, the uh, nexus of culture and uh, maybe pop culture and criminology, um, similar to... Uh, uh, the thinker we'll be discussing today, namely uh, Nicole Rafter. Um, Nicole Rafter is the title of the book in the series that we'll be, uh, we'll be discussing called um, Routledge, Key Thinkers in Criminology. Um, well, Chase, your, um, how would you say that, your, your first encounter with Nicole Rafter um, was related to vampires, um, could you could you perhaps tell us a tiny bit more about that? Yes, I think that uh, reveals the cultural role. Uh, you're exactly right in my own work and in Rafter's work. So I came into criminology a little bit from the side. I did my PhD in a field called law and society, which is an interdisciplinary field. It's what I work in now at the law school at Leiden, dealing with how law kind of lives and is promulgated in everyday life. And I am of the opinion that criminology is really best conceived as a sort of applied field uh, or um, kind of a, a sister field or a rendezvous field of law and society. I think they share many of the same interests and problems and concerns. And I think that they can profitably share many of the same methods and exchange research. And this is actually quite common. There's quite a bit of overlap. There's a, a program at UC Irvine called Criminology, Law, and Society. So criminology meets law and society. Um, but I mention that because law and society, one wing of that field is about cultural studies of law, about storytelling, how do we sort of learn about law through the stories that we tell? How does law get represented in media and fiction? And similar concerns have started to emerge in criminology over the last few decades. Uh, most listeners will probably know that there are a lot of crime stories out there. Uh, just last night, I was on the phone with a friend and she was telling me about watching the uh, new Scandinavian crime dramas they have on Netflix. She said she really enjoys watching dour-looking people murder each other. Um, everyone has their own Netflix taste. So 
when I was in graduate school, I became really interested in crime stories. I've always loved crime fiction, and I was reading a little, trying to uh, just get a grasp on that history. And I found this article by Nicole Rafter and Paristed is about Cesare Lombroso, who's sort of we might come back to when criminology starts, which is a very fuzzy question, but I think a lot of people would say he's the first formal criminologist. He might have claimed uh, the term in Italy. He was working near the end of the 1900s, and they'd written this really, or sorry, the end of the 1800s, um, and they had written this fascinating article about how the way he described criminals really seemed to be drawing on vampire imagery, that criminals were bloodthirsty, that they might drink the blood. Lombroso's whole theory was that criminals were sort of biologically different than normal people, that they were less evolved. And he described them as having these physical markers, distorted features. You could tell these atavists, these evolutionary throwbacks. So I read that, and I was fascinated by it. But then what really sort of captured me is I was going back to the vampire literature itself, and it turns out uh, that this wasn't only one way. So Lombroso might have drawn on vampire imagery, but Bram Stoker, who wrote Dracula, actually drew on Lombroso quite a bit. And in Dracula, Mina Harker, who's a social worker, she's an educated woman, and she explains to Jonathan how actually Lombroso's theories explain the Count. The Count is one of Lombroso's atavistic types, and she kind of puts the vampire into all of this late uh, 1800s criminological imagery. And so that was really it for me in terms of a research agenda. I became fascinated at this exchange of ideas between fiction and theory, um, and at the way that sort of beneath the surface of both fiction and theory um, both fiction and theory were present and really constructing each other. And I wanted to learn more about how ideas have moved between stories and theories of crime, which was the topic uh, of my dissertation. And I'm working on sort of turning that into a book right now. Um, but in the meantime, Rafter encountering that article was such a, a formative moment for me. And she also, as I learned later, as I read more of her work, wrote quite a bit about crime stories and was interested in many of these questions. Um, so I first wrote this uh, volume about her. Interesting. I, I um, Quite often we run into uh, fiction as an illustration or perhaps a didactic uh, tool but you say it's actually more when it comes to uh, to criminological theory. There's a, there's a feed forward and a feedback between them. I think there can be in some cases. So I had first encountered fiction in the way you describe too. In the United States, for example, in sociology courses, I think it's almost a standard move at this point to play clips from the TV show The Wire in order to teach people about crime, you know, show the... Uh, the reality of uh, drug crime uh, and so on. And it's a fantastic TV show. Um, but I think that sort of didactic use of fiction is most common. But I think many people are starting to develop and really for a few decades have 
been developing the sense that those stories do have ways of working themselves in and expressing themselves in more academic, more scientific settings. Um, That suggestion, which might sound strange to some listeners, I think raises kind of a core argumentative component of the book, um, which is about what really the line between science and literature is and about what makes something academic theory versus not academic theory. But certainly in the last few decades, I think there's been a lot of work out of law schools, cultural studies in Britain, uh, critical criminology, to suggest that there's bias built into our crime theories, that there's racialized imagery, that there's gendered imagery. And of course, all of this imagery comes from somewhere. It's not simply invented by criminologists, but it comes from the rest of society, from the scripts and the narratives and the stories that we see. And so thinking about the possibility of bias in science is one way to start thinking about how these cultural fictional sources could actually make their way into uh, criminological texts. Fascinating. Criminological theory, perhaps as a kind of uh, expression of the, the, the zeitgeist in certain ways. Exactly. I like that. Uh, um maybe maybe we can uh, uh we can turn to the the book itself um so i i guess what you do you you, you treat several of her of her uh major books uh and one or two uh more topic uh you have one or two more topic related chapters um and you start out with uh with prison prison history um and specifically the book uh, partial partial justice maybe could you could you illustrate a bit um, how also uh, history and historiography is so essential in in Nicole Rafter's uh, image of of criminology and criminal theory? Yes, absolutely. Um, so Nicole Rafter, a little bit like myself, uh, didn't have formal training as a historian um, before doing her PhD, which was in uh, criminology or I think criminal justice studies, one of the terms we use for this, uh, she'd been an English teacher, um, which might be where she got some of this thinking about stories and uh, scripts and culture from. Um, But historical research has an important place in the criminological and cultural studies tradition, because I think it is easier perhaps to go back and work out these ideas with texts from the past. Um, If you sort of tried, you could, uh, in theory, I think, try to understand the role of, say, fiction or culture and criminology by doing something like interviewing criminologists today about like what TV shows or books they read. But I don't know if people would be very forthcoming about those things. And it's hard to really see the direct linkages, but what you can do if you turn to historical methods is you can observe how ideas develop over time. And you, with the benefit of historical work, with being able to work with 
archives in the past, you can go back and look at records and diaries and journals and try and understand what the influences are, what's going on in people's lives over time, and how does what's going on in their lives over time kind of make its way into their published output? How do you observe published output over time? Um, and so I think uh, history is a really powerful approach to studying these types of questions. But that said, um, Rafter's first book, Partial Justice, um, I don't think had fully set forth this kind of strong cultural perspective on criminology, certainly. Uh, she had just happened to do historical dissertation work, it, largely, I think, on stumbling across essentially these records of women's prisons and women in prison that she realized weren't fully excavated. Uh, the history of prisons that had been written at the time was largely male-centered. Women mostly weren't mentioned or were sometimes sort of an afterthought, but she realized there were all these records of women being in the big prisons, what we think of the big male prisons of the early uh, 1800s, um, and started writing around that. Even in this book, though, you can see the sort of role of culture and stories come in, because one thing that she talks about as crucial to understanding the history of gender and imprisonment is understanding the cultural stereotype of what she calls the sort of dark lady or the fallen lady, as opposed to the pure lady. Um, a kind of frustratingly, she's not that clear about exactly where she gets this idea from in the book, uh, but I, I speculate a little. Um, and my guess is sort of a combination of like cultural studies work on storytelling and gender. Um, and also, I think you can see some roots of Freud's diagnosis of like the Madonna whore complex going on here. So I speculate that it's kind of a a synthetic idea, but she has this idea that there are cultural stories or tropes about what proper womanhood is, what it is to be a good woman. And then there's also a story of women who deviate from that, who are very dangerous, you know, kind of the dark ladies, like, um, she's not just sort of sexually promiscuous, but she's very dangerous in that. She's more like a femme fatale, you know, Sharon Stone and in basic instinct, she'll uh, sleep with you and then maybe poison you. Um, or stab you, um, or, you know, sort of just her sexuality itself is more dangerous to society. But Rafter is very clear in this first book that there's kind of this powerful cultural dimension to how people imagine womanhood based on their culture, their stories, everything else. And then they take that idea about what safe womanhood is and bring it into the design of prisons, the development of theories about why women commit crime, and so on and so forth. So even early on, without much of a theory of it, she is working at this intersection of culture, history, and criminological theory. That's, uh, yeah, that, that does make sense. Um, I, I, was, uh, I was wondering, because, of course, well, she's a feminist thinker, and, and uh, this book basically is about, um, uh, about images of female criminals, um, but she also, or you, you state in the book as well that, that this whole feminist experience is also crucial uh, to understanding uh, men's experiences as well. Uh, so what would you say that the female prison history means for the, the, the wider prison history or uh, criminology, perhaps? 
That, yeah, that's a really good question. This is an argument that uh, Rafter made that I found really interesting, and she made it after publishing the first edition of this book. So in the introduction, you know, oftentimes when an academic gets to go back and um, reissue their book, they can make some revisions or do a new preface or something. Um, and so Partial Justice, I think, got a second print a few years later, and she made this argument that I thought was really interesting that understanding women's prison history was also crucial to understanding men's history. And I think the argument is kind of just a logical argument that in if you say that understanding women's prison history is just about understanding women's prisons, that really does rely on the view that sort of the male experience is the default or the norm, and then the women's experience is a deviation from it. But as Rafter points out, if you take sort of male and female as a gender binary, these are two opposing sides of a binary that are constructing each other, right? Neither one is actually a starting point from which the other derives. They're sort of dialectically in conversation with each other. We know what women are because they're different than men. We know what men are because they're different from women. And so she points out there are things that got taken as sort of normal in the history of prisons at large or just natural. But actually, she thinks you can see that they're gendered and that they're rooted in gendered assumptions about men if you understand the way that they depart from the gendered assumptions about women. So understanding the role of gender in prison really helps us understand more complicated gender interactions in the prison system as a whole. So to give a specific example, um, she suggests that actually some of the severe treatment in reformatories in places that were, so in the early 20th century, there were institutions that were reformatories and sort of intended to bring about maybe moral rehabilitation or better character. There's a longstanding goal of the penitentiary system, but they could be quite physically severe, including chains um, or whipping. Uh, it's not in the book, but I read once about a juvenile reformatory in the early 20th century that was all about sort of rehabilitating young men into good citizens, but they do things like manacle their feet together and whip them for disciplinary infractions. And so how how is it that something so physically brutal is about reformation? And Rafter says, well, if we look at the gender difference in Reformation by looking at what Reformation was for women, we can actually see that there's a gendered assumption about men in that mainstream prison history, that men are tough, that they need to be made tough, and that they need to be made into sort of real men through this type of brutal treatment that as men they should be uh, prepared and expected to experience. So learning about the history of women's prisons is really a way of learning about women's prisons, but also learning about the prison system writ large by understanding the sort of construction of gender across the spectrum. Um, something I, I mentioned very briefly at the end that I should say is obviously a lot of this uh, speaks of gender in terms of a binary, which I don't think is the cutting edge theoretical perspective on gender today, uh, but was certainly the view of gender in like the 19th century reformatories. So as a historical matter, when we're working with this, um, I think it's a good analytical framework. Um, 
that said, it would be very interesting, I think, to learn more. Uh, this is something I said in the book. It would be very interesting to learn more about the history of experiences of gender non-conforming people in prisons and how sort of cases of defiance of the gender binary were dealt with by these institutions too. Um, but yeah, anyways, uh, so I think the core of her argument for why does women's prison history speak to the prison system at large, it's because it helps us understand what it's constructed against. Yeah, I, I understand. Does this also um, uh, tie into her interpretation of, of social control theory, would you say? I think so. So social control theory that you raise is this perspective in criminological theory and it's really unusual to take something like social control theory into history because social control theory is more of a, a contemporary, well, not contemporary. It's more of sort of a trying to understand why people commit crimes and why they don't theory. Um, and the idea is essentially that people gain attachments to social institutions that teach them to internalize um, these sort of ordering, disciplining values. So, you know, you're raised within a, a family and a school and maybe a, a church and a community, and you kind of attach to and internalize all of these and control yourself. So the idea is sort of people aren't not committing crime because they've been, say, scared by deterrence, by the threat of punishment or whatever, um, but just because they don't envision themselves as people who would commit crime. And in my experience, I think that actually resonates for a lot of people. I'll sometimes ask students when I teach this, I'm like, if murder were legalized tomorrow, would you kill anyone? And of course, everyone says, no, I'd never do that. It's wrong. So, you know, it's not, I think this is hopefully true for most people. They're not killing because of the threat of punishment. They're killing because we all, we know that that's wrong. That's not how you deal even with people you really dislike. But anyways, Rafter takes this backwards into the past and uh, asks how we can use this theory to try to understand what happens for people who are kind of excluded from those dominant social institutions, which women are excluded from a lot of the labor market throughout the 19th century, certain public institutions. And especially she looks at black women in the South, who she says are sort of excluded from everything socially. They're pushed out of housing, they're pushed out of labor, they're subject to incredible uh, surveillance and control, especially sort of after, well, during slavery, obviously, but also after slavery with the rise of sort of resistance to the reconstruction, the rise of Jim Crow policies, the massive deployment of policing against freed black people. She says social control theory is something we should keep in mind when we're looking at a society that makes the choice for racist or sexist reasons to push huge groups of people out of its social institutions. So this was a, a controversial conclusion, I think, at the time, at least with some readers, but she suggests actually um, perhaps it's not surprising that uh, the prison records suggest things like a higher rate of crime for black women. Black women were pushed out of legitimate social institutions. She does note there are real problems with um, making that type of assessment based off things like prison and police records. Um, there's a number of methodological problems. Basically, if Black women are policed more, which we know they are, you will also find a higher rate of recorded crime there because the police are the ones who are recording your crime statistics. They're the ones constructing it. 
Um, but it's, uh, I think it's an interesting argument to think about what it would do from a criminalistics perspective for a society to shove huge parts of people out of its social institutions, which the exclusionary racist history of the United States has a lot of instances of that happening. Um, and so, yeah, she, I think, is drawing on those insights to say social control theory reminds us that the history of what we shove out and marginalize, if we exclude women from the mainstream, if we exclude people of color, we should expect that to have real criminological consequences, I think is maybe an implicit idea in this book. All right. Well, um, this ties into the next chapter. I think uh, uh, it's on the book, uh, Creating Born Criminals, if I'm, uh, if I'm correct. Um, yes. And I guess, uh, well, it's, it's basically on the social construction of, uh, well, a darker part of the criminological uh, history, so to say, um, which is uh, the eugenic movement. Um, could you could you tell us a bit about what, what her book is about uh, exactly? Yeah, absolutely. So when Rafter actually had been doing her PhD, um, I mentioned she kind of found some records that weren't well explored. And what they were really about was about sort of what were called mentally defective women. And there's a long history of constructing women as less intelligent than men. So we started this conversation talking about Cesare Lombroso, the Italian criminologist, psychologist guy. And Lombroso, for example, wrote that women were like big children and is saying that they don't have sort of the uh, the self-control or the rational capacity of grown men. So he says for that reason, the criminal woman is truly a monstrous uh, figure because she's a double deviation. She's both a woman and a criminal. And so there's an intersection here between ideas about mental ability and ideas about gender. And that was really uh, what Rafter had kind of stumbled on. And so after doing this book on prison gender, which in part the timing of that was inspired by an available grant for working on it. And, um, you know, you don't always turn your dissertation into your first book, but she went back to these ideas about mental uh, capacity and realized very quickly that there was a whole story about the role of criminology in the eugenics movement here. So America has... Well, it has a lot of dark chapters of its past, but one of them is in the early 20th century in particular, it had a very, very prominent eugenics movement. And that was actually involved in inspiring and influencing some of the Nazi racial purity laws. Um, she had learned from reading history uh, that this affiliation between the American and German eugenics movements, it was kind of disavowed by some after the Second World War. Once the Nazis became our enemies, this was obviously very embarrassing. Um, but before the war, there were some genuine ties uh, between Germany, the US, Austria, uh, Britain, certainly, um, places where there were these centers of sort of race and intellect and ability science. And she dug into the records from institutions for people who were criminal and had essentially were seen to have less mental ability. It's hard to know exactly how to talk about this. One thing that comes up in the book is 
even at the time in the 19th and early 20th centuries, the terms they used were just changing rapidly. So there's the degenerate, the mental defective, the term retardation, feeble-minded, just sort of um, rapid, rapid turnover as people are reconstructing these diagnoses and trying to claim the area. And then, of course, many of these terms are incredibly stigmatizing and offensive um, and not uh, in use today. And so I kind of use the blanket term of mental disability um, for reasons I discuss more in the book, but it essentially seemed um, like the best neutral term. So what she's looking at is the history of how criminologists have interacted in this period with people who are either have mental disability or are believed to have mental disability, because sometimes even that determination is very questionable. And she's looking at that in order to understand the construction of this criminal figure who's emerged by the early 20th century, this criminal who's criminal either because they're mentally disabled and can't control themselves, or in the case of many, many poor white women who were targeted by the eugenics movement, because they have bad genes and will give birth to mentally disabled offspring who will go on and commit all of these crimes. And there were all of these books and sort of fictionalized family studies about the bad seed of these women who would give birth to criminal generations. It was an excuse uh, for compulsory sterilization. Um, the U.S. performed a huge a number of compulsory sterilizations in prisons and women's reformatories and other institutions. And so in creating Born Criminals, uh, Rafter set out to understand this history. Um, and so, yes, that's, uh, that's then where I came in. <laughs> I see. Um, I, I want to be, before we, uh, scare everybody away from Cesare Lombroso's work at large, uh, you do also say that uh, some parts of his work do uh, uh, deserve some praise, I, 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 I guess. Um, which are those elements? Well, I have a more complicated relationship with him, but there are people around today who think he deserves some praise. So he's an interesting figure. I don't um, really agree with them myself. Uh, I can understand where rafter was coming from on some of this i disagree with some of the people i'm discussing in the book um but i think there is a question here so what what deserves praise and what doesn't deserve praise so lombroso actually i'm thinking about it a little more he was a much more complicated thinker than people usually give him credit for and in ways maybe there are ideas uh of his that are interesting but almost never what we associate with him so lombroso is mostly caricatured, and I've certainly been talking about him this way, as someone who just thinks crime is biological. Um, and he did do a lot of that. He did these skull dissections, claimed he'd found sort of the criminal lump on the skull, that tattoos revealed crime, that having a weird nose revealed crime, very racialized, uh, very stigmatizing stuff. But he also was very interested in psychology and medicine, um, and other sciences, and wrote more broadly about how criminal behavior um, and some of these uh, even sort of 
biologically mediated causes of crime could be caused by, for example, bad social opportunities, um, a lack of education, uh, a lack of sufficient welfare. So Lombroso's view of crime, I think for understandable reasons, is largely remembered as being strictly biological, but it was really more about the interaction between biology, psychology, and sociology. And that uh, fact is exactly where this point that you raise about should we try to recover things from Lombroso comes in. Um, Rafter herself didn't do much work um, on sort of causes of crime, but she did, particularly I think later on in her career after creating Born Criminals, at least it's more explicit, she did, I think, come to admit that it wouldn't be shocking if to her if there was a biological component involved in crime of some sort, because we are, after all, biological creatures. We don't like to think of ourselves as at the mercy of our bodies and our hormones and so on, but we kind of are um, embodied beings, for better or worse. Uh, But of course, she was very aware that saying that that could be an element actually says very little, because you have to then interpret the biology and and say what it means. And that's where um, sort of atrocities have happened in the history of criminology. But there are researchers around today, there's a school of research called biopsychosocial criminology. Um, and one of their proponents, Adrian Rain, um, I discussed in the book, has explicitly said that we should sort of see Lombroso as someone who was bigoted and had very crude methodological tools, but in his attempt to get at an interaction between biology, psychology, and sociology, um, actually has a research agenda that's worth pursuing. Um, So I think this is an interesting question. My concern about it, though, is in practice when I read this work, including Rain's work, it, it very often seems to me like biology has a way of predominating. Uh, I am not convinced that I have seen anyone really recover this as a synthetic perspective. Uh, I think even if you believe that conceptually in the abstract a biological uh, cause is there, the question of how it is disaggregated from gender and race and all of the sort of social facts about us that are bound up in our biology is incredibly troublesome. And in my opinion, biology often ends up implicitly becoming sort of the master driving characteristic in these stories, which I think is concerning. But many people would disagree with me about this, um, and this is definitely a live debate in the field. Um, I think it's an excellent point you make. Lombroso is definitely a more complicated thinker than kind of the caricature of him. He's really useful to use for sort of the biological reference stand-in, but his writing in Criminal Man, it's actually quite a bit uh, more than that. Thank you, sir. Perhaps not worth the praise, but uh, perhaps worth the read. I would say people should absolutely read it. I think students of uh, criminology and the history of criminology should carefully read Lombroso, yes. All right, so uh, let's let's get uh, on to the the next book uh, by by Rafter that you discuss, which uh, perhaps well, I, I I presume is uh, closest to your own uh, uh, interests. Uh, Shots in the mirror. 
Um, I had a lot of fun writing this chapter. <laughs> I understand. Uh, you you open the chapter with the uh, uh, story from from pop pop culture. I'm not sure which it is. Wait, let me see. Is that um? It was the movie Seven. Yeah, yeah. There it is. Could you uh, could you elaborate a tiny bit on this? Absolutely. I love this movie so much. Um, so Seven is a uh, kind of like a neo-noir crime thriller. It's a David Fincher movie. Um, and it's about these two detectives who are trying to understand a killer. Uh, it opens in the movie with one of them stumbling across this horrifying crime scene of this man who has been forced to eat himself to death. Uh, it's very gothic. There's kind of some body horror. Um, he was a large man who was forced to then eat and eat and eat um, until he died. So it's kind of this torture murder. Um, and as they keep following these weird cases, they discover this um, criminal who's never given a name. He's almost like a force of nature more than a person. Uh, his name is John Doe. Um, and he's designing all of these killings in order to sort of punish people for their sins. And then in the twist, the very last killing that he orchestrates is actually his own murder at the hands of one of the detectives, because he also has to be punished for his sins. Um, I love the movie just from a pure enjoyment standpoint. I've always loved kind of neo-noir and gothic styles, but I think the content is very interesting. The John Doe killer makes these remarks when they find his diaries about how sort of we can't be what God has intended with all of the decay and the degeneracy in our cities. And this is actually a very old worry. I watched this movie for the first time in graduate school while I was working on a chapter um, about the American Revolution, and I was reading uh, Crevacoir's Letters from an American Farmer, where he sort of laments on slavery and rape in the colonies and all of these things. And he says, we simply, we can't be the class of beings that we pretend to be. We're pretending to be these civilized Republican Enlightenment men, and we simply aren't that. And it just reminded me so much of almost um, the same language. Um, but the the killer in seven i think this is the direction i went with at the opening of the book i talk about this movie repeatedly throughout this chapter um because it's so much fun for me but he's also just such a an alien horrifying figure i think he's a really good example of the criminal as monster type person you know he doesn't even want to survive he wants to destroy himself he doesn't even want to have a name he burns off his fingertips in order to not have an identity he's really outside of kind of normal humanity and that's one trope uh in crime fiction is the idea of the genuine monster um this is a figure that recurs in my opinion throughout the history of criminological theory certainly for our familiar friend lombroso his worst atavists are genuine monsters the vampiric blood drinkers um and john doe is almost a more calculative um monster and so i uh 
thought this would be an interesting story to juxtapose with then a different crime movie. I also discuss uh, The King of New York, which is a crime movie in kind of a similar genre, also a bit of a neo-noir, but it's just a much more understandable criminal. The criminal really has a motive. It's about this guy named Frank White, and he wants money and respect and power, and he's engaged in the drug trade and all of this violence because of what he wants. Um, And so these are interesting movies, you could use them didactically in that way you mentioned in a criminological theory course to teach different theories, right? John Doe is sort of a classic psychological abnormality mental alien theory. Um, and Frank White is sort of a utilitarian, maybe like a deterrence theory, like he thinks he'll come out better if he sells drugs and uses violence than if he didn't. So maybe if he was more scared but these are are really accounts of motives and causes of crime that i think resonate with different theories and that was exactly what um shots in the mirror was about i think this third book is the moment when rafter has turned fully to this cultural orientation that we started with and she's now really trying to think systematically about cultural artifacts um as they relate to criminological theory yeah, thanks. Um, you also mentioned this this horror movie. I haven't seen it, but I've heard uh, dark stories about it called Hereditary. Mm. <laughs> uh, w- w- what's your interpretation of the movie? How is it? Uh, how is it relevant? So this is um, that's a really good question because Hereditary is not on its face a crime movie. But it is a little bit, right? I mean, in a in a horror movie about, you know, um, demons, or I think it's sort of like a, an ancient demonic entity, the demon, you know, kills people. That's criminal behavior. Um, it's, uh, it's certainly not socially normative, uh, the goal of the demon. Um, what I thought was interesting in heredi- uh, heredity and is really in other stories is this strong idea in the story that that tendency towards chaotic violent behavior towards the killing can be passed on through birth so this movie is about a family that's kind of cursed to pass on um the descent of this demon and so on the one level it is a uh story uh about a demon but on another level it's a story about kind of passing on psychological abnormality that leads to violence, right? You can make sense of much of the um, activities in the movie without needing the demon. If you sort of interpret it as like mental disability or psychological alienation from that classic, like Lombroso psychology point of view, a strong, mental abnormality theory of crime um you could read much of the movie as a metaphor for that at the end of the movie i think one of them actually becomes like the demon king of hell so maybe that's a little less criminological uh, i don't think that ever happened in lombroso's writing um but much of much of the movie is really at its core this story about the fear that your ancestors will kind of pass on their propensity to sin to you and that I think points towards a number of criminological theories um, that are out there. That's how we think about uh, 
biology and psychology, defective ability, it really follows quite nicely from that second chapter on creating born criminals, because the whole idea of the born criminal is someone who's born to or has inherited um, these dark propensities and these dark tastes. Yeah, and it's interesting as well to think um, what we mentioned earlier, um, that the... um, well, um, how would you say that cultural cultural artifacts as uh, as an expression of our uh, of the the sign of no the, the criminological theories and the cultural artifacts as expressions of the sign of the times that uh, such movie is hereditary that we are actually uh, not the individuals that can uh, freely choose but that we're actually secretly determined by a. a our family history or as criminologists uh, determined by uh, um, figures like Lombroso, that they're always lurking. Yeah, exactly. I think actually not just in criminology, I think we have a lot of cultural fear of being determined by the past right now as we try to come to terms with the past, because the past is such a powerful shadow in our lives. You know, William Faulkner famously wrote that the past is never really gone. It's not even past, just making the point that we're really all just the sum of our our memories and experiences. But as we think about the big past, uh, as societies sort of, or activists or people try to come to terms with the history of slavery and the history of colonialism and kind of the many sins of history, uh, or as criminologists maybe, you know, do research and tell us that um you know, maybe your psychology is a little unusual for reasons you can't control. I think there's a lot of fear that we aren't in our own control. And this is one of the most consistent cultural themes in this body of work. This speaks to the movie Seven. It goes all the way back to letters from an American farmer 300 years ago. It's this fear that, you know, we think of ourselves as smart calculative, in control, um, able to control our actions. But at the very bottom, we might just not be like that. Uh, And I think that's frightening. And that fear is expressed in criminological theory and nonfiction writing and fiction and movies and all over the place. I think we have a lot of fear that we are determined by the past. You use a word in the chapter that I hadn't encountered before called uh, chronotope. Yes. What are these and why are they important? So that's an interesting question. This is a little bit of my own contribution of a a theory idea to this book. Um, So Rafter didn't um, write about chronotopes at all. Um, What a chronotope is, uh, was it was an answer that a Russian literary theorist named Mikhail Bakhtin had developed to the question of what is a genre. Um, So Bakhtin's point, um, there's an old question in literary criticism that I think applies in other areas of cultural criticism as well, which is if I talk to you about genres like crime film science fiction or neo-noir. I've been using genre terms, and you kind of know what I'm saying, but all of these things really blur into each other. They don't have firm boundaries, and so this is interesting for literary theorists. We know what a novel is. We know what a, a drama or a noir is, and yet 
oftentimes in reality, specific works of culture are picking and choosing from different genres. They're blending and blurring genres. You know, genres are always changing and yet always recognizable. Um, and so this gives rise to the question of really how do you or can you kind of identify or define genres? And this was an interesting question to me in terms of uh, uh, Rafter's book, Shots in the Mirror, because she actually developed a genre analysis of crime films in there. She had sub-genres of crime films. So she talks about the courtroom film, the cop film, the prison film. Um, and I think all of these work really well as analytic categories. But again, if you try and specify them they run into each other you know the cops are involved in prisons and in courtrooms uh, prison films often will involve sort of courtroom scenes so these things really do mix together so Bakhtin's um idea of the chronotope uh which is kind of a cumbersome term but it was a term by which he meant to suggest that the core of these genres when we throw these terms around what we're really talking about is how a story is structured and plotted throughout space and time and how space and time interact with each other in the story so science fiction is science fiction because it operates in this space time of kind of the future um and if you open a science fiction novel and it's 300 years in the future, uh, you know, you aren't surprised. The genre has your expectations attuned for the story to be plotted in this way where an imagination of other places and times constructs each other. Whereas, you know, if you'd, uh, years back when Harry Potter was the thing, if you'd opened the seventh Harry Potter book and it was 300 years in the future and Harry was on the moon, you'd be like, what the hell is going on here? Because that's not the genre of story that's in. That is a, a genre that's much more about sort of the coming of age and the journey through different home environments through adolescence. Um, uh, and, you know, the home and the school are really the spaces through the life, uh, through the time of young adulthood in that sort of Bildungsroman genre. Um, and so what I proposed at the end, um, and I, you know, most of this book is about sort of exploring Rafter's relationship um, to the rest of criminological literature. So I didn't fully develop this idea, but I wanted to throw out the suggestion that I think her move towards genre analysis could really be picked up by other criminologists, other cultural criminologists who are interested in going down this road by drawing on maybe some of the tools for genre analysis from literary theory, like the chronotope. Um, so I think we can actually see criminological theory has something of its own space-time. I think this is true. Criminological theories propose different chronotopes, different kind of space-times or plots of when and how someone becomes a criminal. In differential association theory, it's all about that young adulthood time in these kind of fluid spaces between peer groups is when it really happens. In social control theory, it's about how sort of earlier on in your life, before young adulthood, you're in these uh, institutional places. I think criminological theories really have plots, which is why the sort of crime motives of crime films are so recognizable um, in uh, movies like The King of New York or Seven. And so I wanted to suggest that it would be really interesting to try and 
um, analyze like some chronotopes of crime films. Um, I didn't necessarily fully develop that idea by then doing it. I think many listeners will be like, so what happens if you did do that? And that's just not the sort of book that this is. If no one else does that, maybe one day I will get around to it. Um, but yes, at the very end, I kind of proposed that this would be interesting um, and discuss that I do think there are chronotopes of crime films and crime theories. And it might be a, a concept that allows a little more systematic analysis of maybe some of the interplay between culture and theory. All right, so on with the next topic, um, um, philosophy and, uh, and criminology, which is uh, a topic I don't encounter all that much. Uh, you speak in the, in the chapter, you speak of the end of criminology. Um, where does that term come from? That's a really good question. So at the beginning, I said the question of what is science hangs over some of this book, and this is really the chapter that gets into that. I took the term the end of criminology um, from a science, a book by the science writer John Horgan, which is called The End of Science. Um, and what he's talking about in The End of Science um, is this feeling that he thinks has developed among some scientists that hard sciences here, so we're talking about like physics, you know, um, is kind of not done exactly but the wonder if sort of all the big breakthroughs have happened science when we think about the history of science used to be revolutionary the discovery of gravity the discovery of uh you know the the rotation of the sun um relativity the rise of the atomic age and Horgan interviews scientists. He's writing about kind of philosophies of what makes science, how we think about these scientific revolutions over time. And he has this sense that many of them describe that we could reach a point where we've sort of stopped revolutionizing on big paradigms because we've gotten there. And it's not that there's no science left to do, but it all becomes what he calls sort of normal or problem solving science. There's a, uh, idea taken from uh, Kuhn's idea of sort of the normal science paradigm and the revolutionary science paradigm. So for example, in biology, it, we may have figured out the basic theoretical idea behind evolution, right? For centuries, there were these revolutionary ideas like Lamarckian uh, evolution, Darwinian evolution, but it may be that we understand evolution now. And that doesn't mean there's no science left to do there, but it may be sort of cataloging the different species, slowly observing evolution in progress. You know, the grand, like, world-shaking revolutionary science of uh, evolution or biology, in that sense, it might be over. We might know how this works. Um, and that could happen with more and more things. And so he has kind of this sense from some writers of wondering about what the future of science looks like if it becomes more and more problem-solving. And so I was reading Horgan's book, and I was also at the time reading some of Rafter's speeches going back through working on this, because she talked a lot about philosophy of science and like articles and speeches, not so much books. Um, but she mentioned in a, a speech, I think it was to the American Society of Criminology, I'm not sure, but I think then this sense that I've seen other criminologists articulate, that she said sort of criminology is not having 
the big theoretical revolutions on the cause of crime anymore. There were in the 20th century, you know, there's differential association theory and uh, neighborhood disorganization theory and social control theory and the biopsychosocial theory, but the core work proposing the biopsychosocial theory is from like four or five decades ago now. And when I talk to people, that's the latest thing in sort of revolutionary iterations of frameworks. And so I wondered, like, is this the same thing? Is she expressing the same thing? Um, in that criminology is no longer generating sort of new grand theory, I think there's a lot of problem solving. There's still, you know, articles and good work every year testing these theories and refining them. But it may be that, like, deterrence and social control and differential association and biopsychosocial are kind of the reasons we think people commit crimes and then you know there will be problem solving work um within those areas so i thought that uh it just reminded me so much of the horgan that i kind of thought it was a nice metaphor for talking about the history of the philosophy of criminology as a science and so that was one theme in the chapters she's basically talked about you can divide criminology up into these periods and there's a period of what she calls exploratory modernism when criminology is a new science but there's a firm belief that you can scientifically understand human behavior but not that many entrenched ideas and so there's this incredibly creative period where people are just going off in every direction and kind of saying very strange things sometimes trying to fit human behavior into a scientific framework but over about a century we seem to have uh settled more comfortably into kind of an entrenched modernist problem-solving framework in criminology and if that diagnosis is right then i think it's fair in the same sense that horgan asked about the end of science to ask about the end of criminology and what's left um you know, people like me in criminology, I deal with this by kind of going in a different direction, right? I don't ask sort of criminalistics questions in my research about why people commit crimes. I research other things. And I know a lot of young criminologists who take that approach. Everyone I know who does ask questions about the etiology or the cause of crime is very much working within established theoretical traditions from 50 years ago or more. Um, so. Yeah, uh, there's always a little bit of a risk to predicting, of course, that the future will will not see change or revolution. You never know the revolution is coming until it's upon you. Um, so maybe I'm full of it. Uh, and, you know, in 10 years, someone is going to just like develop a completely new theoretical idea. But one one thing she points out is there may be real social institutional reasons for this change, theorizing gets harder. I think it almost used to be easier to theorize an academic work back when the standards for rigorous work were a little lower because you could be a little more creative or free-flowing. Um, with sort of the internet and technology and modernity and higher and higher expectations, um, I think that's been really good for work in a lot of ways and that we have to really ground ourselves more and more in the literature. But also as you ground your ideas more and more and more in what's been done, I think it is harder to say something radically different. Um, if you pick up a criminology book from like 120 years ago, if you never have, it's wild how different it is. 
um, there's this psychologist named Stanley Hall. I don't talk about him at all in the book. There's just an interesting example that comes to mind. He's uh, coined a lot of ideas about like adolescence and adolescence is a time of disorder and chaos and strife. And I picked up his big book on adolescence from 1904 once, and it starts with this like almost incomprehensible to me rant about Immanuel Kant and the nature of like moral reasoning and philosophy you could never publish a psychology textbook like that today and on the whole that might be for the best because it doesn't make that much sense but it's very creative whatever he's doing you know it's very original um and i think it's harder to be as free-flowingly original these days uh simply because we're we're much more established in the web of existing knowledge that comes with benefits and drawbacks Thank you. I I have um, I think two or three more questions. Yeah. Um, so we'll also leave a few parts of the book for the for the people to read. Um, you offer four reflections at the end. Yes. What are they? So the first and I think most important is what I termed criminology is not bad, but it is dangerous. And this reflection is in reference to especially the second chapter about um, biological criminology and eugenics, but also the sixth chapter is on genocide. Um, and well, both the way that criminologists can contribute to the understanding of genocide, but also she points out that criminology is implicated in some genocides. Criminological theories were you know, drawn on by the Nazis in justifying why certain groups of people, such as the mentally disabled, should be exterminated. And so there's this famous remark Michel Foucault gave in an interview about some of his kind of wide-ranging critiques, where I think someone had asked him something to the extent of like, should we try and go backwards? Should we go back to like before we invented all these new concerning terrible forms of social power? And he says something to the effect of, I'm not saying every all this stuff we have, the the prison surveillance technology, etc., is bad. I'm saying it is dangerous um, and that there's value to raising our attention to the dangerousness. And that reminded me a lot of the attitude that Rafter had adopted, especially towards biological criminology near the end of her life, where she was pretty, I think, open to the idea um, that, for example, there were biological causes involved in human behavior and therefore in the behavior we call crime, but also that that is incredibly dangerous um, and that we can never afford to forget that because of the horrible, horrible uses that those ideas have been put to. And I think that's a lesson that criminologists should take from this body of history. Criminology, I think some criminologists actually don't take it seriously enough which might sound strange to say, but many criminologists have not spent time in a courtroom or in a prison or dealing with the reality of it. I got a law degree when I was in school too, and I spent a summer as a public defender um, trying to defend people in San Francisco. And that's not like a ton of experience, but it, even my limited experience is more than most criminologists have. But being labeled as a criminal, being 
punished, um, being stigmatized, being subjected to prison. I mean, these are degrading and painful experiences. They ripple out through communities. They ripple down through generations. If you look at something like the social effects of mass incarceration in the United States, the fact that theories of crime can be so destructive as to upend societies, I think is something we should come to terms with. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about I talk about crime for a living, and I think people's inherent human desire to be safe from other people doing bad things to them makes a lot of sense. I don't particularly want to be a crime victim, Um, but there's real power to authoritatively declaring why people do things, and it throughout history has been a really dangerous and stigmatizing power. And so I think this is a reflection of just a little humility um, and a little remembering that criminological theory can have a lot of surprising consequences. So it's not bad to do criminology at all, but it really can be dangerous. Um, I think that's something that I really draw from Rafter's books on genocide and biological theories of crime. Um, you asked about all four, and and the other three, I think, are much briefer. Um, one was simply that uh, criminology should be open to all of these new, surprising cultural sources. I talk a little bit about the criminology of video games, which is slowly starting to emerge. But in the same way that we take books and movies as serious sources of cultural information, there are a lot of video games about crime. I mentioned this in the book. I'd played this uh, game a friend told me about called Prison Architect, where the whole game is you're building and managing a prison and you get these dossiers of what the people in the prison have done and the crimes they've been convicted for. I mean, this is information about crime. This is cultural scripts about crime and its causes that people are receiving. So I think criminology should keep striving to be um, open to all of this. Um, The third one was to follow Rafter in just being attentive to justice. Um, I think when we do criminology, we shouldn't just think about sort of what we can get published or what we can uh, sort of do to extend theory, but she very often was concerned with who's been treated unfairly, who's been left out, what's been done to women, what's been done to black women, what's been done to the poor whites who were seen as mentally inferior. And I think a concern with justice is not enough on its own to help avoid the dangerous pitfalls of criminology, but I think it's a really great place to start. Just don't be afraid to think about justice and morality. We're all people trying to make a better society. Um, The fourth and final one doesn't really have much to do with the academic work, but something I was incredibly struck by reading through the secondary material for this book, you know, um, statements by people who knew her, um, interviews, personal diaries, biographical materials, was the impact she'd made on her students and her friends as just a supporter and a mentor. And I think in many ways, even though she has an incredible academic legacy, that's really a more meaningful human legacy and also one that has really been huge in contributing to the field, all of the people who she trained and taught and worked with who have gone in so many different directions and who she's encouraged. And so sometimes in the academy, I think you can get the impression that research is the primary job. Um, And I know research and publishing is very important, but I think looking back and trying to study a little the life of someone who I think lived their life very well, 
uh, one lesson is that research isn't the only job and the human connections and factors of the job of an academic are very, very important. So those are my four lessons uh, for academics from the life of Nicole Rafter. Thanks so much for, uh, for enlightening us uh, on the, on the book and on those, uh, those four, four final uh, reflections. So I guess we've been through many different parts of the, of the, of the book. Um, I, I've, I found it a vibrant read because also because of the, the illustrations every time and the back and forth between the, the culture and the theory. Uh, so once again, uh, Routledge, Key Thinkers in Criminology, a uh, book's called uh, Nicole Rafter, written by uh, Chase Burton. Um, maybe a final question before we, before we go. So no, well, maybe two questions. What are you working on currently? So I am working on, uh, much like Nicole Rafter herself, my second book will be turning my dissertation into a book. Um, So I mentioned some of that material about old uh, writings and letters and diaries in American history on crime. And I'm trying to connect some of that to early American theories about the prison. I have an article coming out in Crime History Societies very soon about Um, Benjamin Rush, this American founding father who had one of the early visions of the penitentiary, and the ways that I think we can see him relying on gothic fiction and gothic writers. And I'm really building on that argument in the 1700s and early 1800s to try and understand the role of gothic fears of crime in building early kind of pre-criminology visions of control and order. So I'm working on a book uh no title yet but hopefully forthcoming in a year or two great i love the gothic imagery um finally what series should we watch should we watch <laughs> that's for a... suggested criminologists hmm what should you watch for suggested criminologists so obviously the classic is the wire i'm guessing most people will have seen it but it does deserve a watch if you haven't seen it I would say if you've seen it and you want something a little more interesting, I thought the uh, HBO kind of adaptation sequel of the Watchmen comics was very interesting. It's this old comic, um, an old Alan Moore comic. And HBO, it's not really an adaptation, I guess. It's sort of an afterwards in the fictional universe of it. But um, it's about sort of all of this really interesting stuff about policing and crime in a world where superheroes are real and sort of like the police become so afraid of reprisals as the arms race escalates, the police start like wearing masks. And um, it, it, I think it's very embedded in kind of like the police violence protests of the U S and questions about force. So that was kind of the most thought provoking, relatively recent thing um, that I've seen. Thanks so much. It's uh, it's on my list. Thanks so much for having me on today. All right. Uh, hope to talk uh, next time about your upcoming book. And uh, a great thanks to you. Wish you all the best for today. Thank you very much, Here. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.